Over the last several weeks, we've been exploring this letter of First Peter, and we've called this series The Common Made Holy, because that's what God does, is He takes that which is incredibly ordinary, us, and through faith in what Jesus Christ has done and in who He is, He transforms us into something that is incredible, a saint. A saint is, is not someone that's necessarily done a miracle or been affirmed by a, a, a research body. A saint is a person who has faith in Jesus Christ and is set apart for obedience to him. And so if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you are a saint. And what God wants to teach us through um, Peter's writings here is what that looks like and, and how that reality transforms our life day by day. Now, last week, we looked at the security of a saint, and, and we're going to pick up there, but then jump ahead to the, to the last chapter for a little bit, because I, I want to, to focus in on that area a little bit more, and Peter returns to that theme and that subject here in chapter 5. But if you remember last week, if you were here with us and looking at the security of a saint, he said this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Been in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy." always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And it was a reminder to you last week that God will use your trials and my trials as the most powerful platform to be able to share the truth of the gospel. Because when people see you and I respond differently because of Christ's presence in our life, when we go through hardship and suffering, it draws them to Christ. It speaks deep into their heart. And so the Bible is not um, a message that says when you come to Christ, everything is going to be perfect and you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. In fact, oftentimes... The opposite sometimes happens. In fact, we're going to look at that in just a few moments about how it sometimes seems to get harder, but it gets so much richer in our relationship and in our joy because God is with us. And it is through those trials that God often speaks most, most clearly through our lives. So let's remember what he's telling us here. And, and what we looked at last week is we looked at fear. And we looked at some of those um, uh, little statements about what fear is, where fear is false evidence appearing real, which is sometimes the case. Fear sometimes is fueled emotions against reason, where there's a battle between how we feel and what we think. Fear is sometimes failure expected as reality. But in truth, even though those fit in certain circumstances, for the believer, what fear is, if we're going to turn it into an acronym, is fear, is forgetting Emmanuel as rescuer. It's forgetting that God is with us each and every moment, and he has already rescued us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever I face, we are not alone. And it's in that thought, in that spirit, 
that we're reminded that we can have incredible hope because nothing can truly harm you or I. Because who you are, the real you, the deepest part of who God created and saved you to be is absolutely secure in Christ if you have trusted him as your Savior and Lord. Even if this body, which is our tent, our tabernacle, even if that is harmed or destroyed, the real you is absolutely safe. That's why Peter says, trying to get us to see with a different perspective, an eternal perspective of what God is doing in our heart, in our life. Last week, um, we looked at harm, and, and we discovered that really there are only two possibilities that can ever really harm who you truly are. First of all, if you've never trusted Christ, then we stand outside of him and we have to stand before a perfect and holy judge. But inside of Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior and Lord, the only one that really can defeat you is you. Our disobedience, our unbelief, can limit us from becoming who God intends for us to be. And it's important for us to be able to recognize that truth because it will truly enable us to defeat all other fears. When we have a proper understanding of who God is and what he has done, every other fear falls away. But we need to recognize that sometimes we are our own worst enemy when we're being disobedient or when we lack faith. The English writer and pl playwright John Webster, all the way back in 1590, wrote something like this. Whether we fall by ambition, blood, or lust, like diamonds, we are cut with our own dust. That's the only thing that truly can harm us because we are safe and secure in Christ. And that's why God gives us this great promise. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. That's what he wants to remind us of. And now, these next verses are going to make it even more practical. How do we live with that truth that nothing can truly harm us in when we're safe and secure in Christ Jesus? Well, Peter, in chapter 5, gives, first of all, some instruction to pastors. He reminds elders that we need to be humble, we need to be approachable, we need to make sure that we're doing ministry for the right reason. And then he goes down in verse 5, and he says, Likewise, um, um, all of you, close yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's saying the first way to truly apply this security that we have in Christ is to be humble. And he goes on and repeats it again, and this is where we're going to pick up in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, Peter's doing something that's, that's really important here in, this, in these verses. Because you'll see some words. If we read through um, all of that, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you or lift you up. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And what he's doing is he's using some language and imagery that um, is a little bit lost when we just read through it. But if we look at it, if we were able to, to listen to this um, in the language of, of the first century, we would see that he's making a connection, that we're to be under the covering of God's hand. And then we're to throw all of our cares, all of our anxieties on him. Now, here's the problem, for, for at least for me. When I think of the word cast or throw, I have a tendency to think of a ball. You know, that's, that is my idea. And the only problem with a ball is when I throw it, something happens in that it usually comes back. <laughs> it's a curved wall. And, yeah. and so what I have a tendency to do with my fears and my anxieties is as it comes back, I pick it up again. Anybody else do that? I know that was a really strange illustration that didn't work very well, but the truth is there, okay? So just go with it. Any of you try to cast your cares on the Lord, and before you know it, you've picked them back up again? My wife does it. Nobody else, but, some, but she does it. So there you go. That's what we tend to do. But that's not the imagery that, that really is here in these verses. We need to remember who Peter is. Peter was a fisherman, He spent his life, his career, with nets. When he uses the word casting, he has something different in mind than throwing a ball. He has the idea of a net, that you're going to cast through that net everything that is fearful, and you're going to be protected under that net by the power of God. It's a little bit different picture. You see, the net is designed to be a covering over you and I. Now, here's what happens in practice is I can still see the things that I'm afraid of, the fears that I have. I can still see those through the net. But if I focus in instead on the cords of the net and, and recognize that those cords represent God's strength, God's power, God's love, God's glory, it changes the perspective. Because when I look through it this way and I see those fears, but I look and see that God is between me And that fear, it changes absolutely everything. Does that make sense? Here's what I really want you to be able to walk away with today. What God wants you to do is to see your fears through the net of his care, of his love. That's what he's calling us to do, is to be covered in his goodness and in his presence. And that's what he says here, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And he longs to cover you under his mighty hand. When we humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm afraid. I'm wrestling. I'm struggling. He promises to cover over us and to be there to receive every fear, every worry, every anxiety of your life and my life. And that he will take them. Because what do we do with them? We cast them on him. And then he takes them away. We don't just throw them out because that's when we have this tendency to try to pick them back up ourselves. But instead, we're to cast our fear into the net of God's care and presence. That's what he's inviting us to do. And he gives us this incredible answer that you need to make very personal. It says, 
for he cares for you. He doesn't just say he cares for the people in the Old Testament. He doesn't just say he cares for the people in the early church. He says he cares for you personally, individually. He cares about what you're concerned over. God is big enough and his love is wide enough to encompass each and every one of us. And his commitment is proven through the giving of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to bear your sin and my sin. He cares about you and about everything about you. And here's, here's the great thing. This is why this net idea, I think, is important. When we cast our fears upon God, God isn't focused on the fears like we are. God is focused on you and on me. You see, he wants to hold you and to hold me under his hand. He wants to be a covering under us that supports us. He wants to be a covering over us that guards us. He wants to be before us and behind us and beside us. He wants to be all around us because our hearts and our minds are focused on him. Psalm 145, 14 gives us this promise. He says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. And it's like the picture there is the Lord is like a, a net to capture us when we begin to stumble and fall. And in fact, he goes on in, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, in part of the doxology, it talks about him who is able to keep you from falling. It's a beautiful prayer that is there. God is able to keep us from falling. He wants to be under us and, and lift us up. David put it this way with a little bit different metaphor, but the same kind of idea, not only under us, but over you and I. He says this in Psalms chapter 5, verse 12. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Now, if that's true, and you really believe it in your heart, and you apply that so that when you go to work tomorrow morning and you face the thing that you dread in the workplace, or you go um, to the thing that you dread at school or in a relationship, or you go to the doctor because there's, there's anxiety and fear in your life physically, if you really believe God is a shield over and around you, how does it change those fears? Because he's promised to be with us even to the end of the age. When we truly cast our cares on Christ, we also cast ourselves completely on him and he covers us. God's care is designed to hold you, not just the fear or concern or anxiety that you have. And that is far more important, that he longs to hold you and I in his hands, in his presence. God is personally concerned about you and me. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, God is not too high or lofty to remember that his children are in a land where illness is prevalent, where accidents happen every day where the loss of jobs and financial worries are present, where work is filled with difficulties, where we feel overwhelmed as parents, 
where people are betrayed by their closest loved ones, where there is separation from ones we love, sometimes by circumstance, sometimes by sin. Separations come, and some never return to us again. God knows it and says, now I know the kind of world that you live in, but I have laid hold onto you forever. And I know every detail of your trouble and all your problems. And I'll anticipate every act of the enemy and every um, enemy that you face. I will go before you. Not only will God go before us, but he also accepts our enemies as his enemies. That's how much God is with you. That's the truth he's calling us to live. We need to look at everything in our, in our life through the net of God's care, goodness, and providence, his provision. We need to look through the net and keep our eye constantly on the strands of God's strength and not on our own weakness and inability. So what I want to encourage us to do is to fix our eyes on the covering of God that he gives to us. I believe that's what Peter is pointing us to. God wants to cover over you and I with his net of care so that the fears fall through and fall away, but you yourself are held secure in the cords of strength, love, grace, and glory. So let's look at those, those four because that's what God holds us with. His strength simply means this, and you need to remember it. Nothing is too hard for God. No circumstance you face is too difficult for him. The scripture in Isaiah says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Sometimes, um, sometimes we have the discussions in the church, especially about songs that we sing, and sometimes they can, some folks will say, well, this focuses too much on me. What we see in the Scripture is uh, and not enough on the Lord, and, and sometimes that can be the case. We can, we can certainly get things that are out of balance, but often what we see in the Scripture is both held together, the present personal reality of a God who is greater than anything that we face and who is worthy of all praise, of all trust. That's what, the, what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, the Lord is my strength. Now, if you were to apply that to your own life, instead of looking at your own inabilities, look at the fact that God is your strength, would that not give you courage to face those anxieties? The cords of God's strength are incredibly important to us. Jeremiah puts it this way. He says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and you, um, by your outstretched arm, nothing, nothing is too hard for you. We need to remember God's strength. The second dimension of God's covering is God's love. And this simply means that no one is more dear to him. God sent his son for you and for me. He has proven your love. Even as was prayed earlier, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemy, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? 
Because that truly describes who I was outside of Christ, the enemy of God. And yet, God loved me so much, he sent his son to bear my sin. Romans 8, verse 31 and 32 puts it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The loving heart of our Father longs to give us of the goodness of his resources. Now, that may not be the things that we think of as good because oftentimes we're focused too much on comfort, but God's provision is so much greater and so much richer. He goes on in verse 38 of Romans 8 and says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means that no fear that you face is wider than his love. Nothing that you will encounter is greater than the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ who proved his love on the cross, reaching out to embrace you and I. God's strength and God's love. The third dimension of God's net of covering is God's grace. And it simply means this, nowhere is too far from him. You see, God pursues us. Sometimes we, we think we are the searcher, but God truly is searching for you and I. And, and one of the ways that I like to, because you know I, I like acronyms, so one of the ways I like to think about grace is simply God's rescue at Christ's expense. God went as far as he could go for me and for you. How incredible is that? 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not, uh, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Now, what Paul is saying there is God can empower you by his grace to accomplish anything he desires. Therefore, we don't need to be fearful of failure. Because his grace is bigger, and there's nowhere he can't reach. No circumstance we face, no valley too dark or too deep that he's not already there with us. And then finally, the last dimension that we're to fix our eyes on is God's glory. Not our own, but his. And what that means is that nothing is ever wasted in him. Even our failures, God can use and transform them to bring glory to his honor and his name, showing, showing the reality of where we were and where he has brought us. God will redeem everything so that it points to the greatness of who he is and what he has done. That's why 1 Peter 5 says, humble, or, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. 
God will use your trials to reveal his life in us, and he will use your life and my life to expose his glory. Nothing is wasted, not even our hurts, not even our disappointments, but we must cast ourselves into the net of God's care and find his hands upon us, lovingly holding us right where we are. That's what he calls us to do. And and so that's what we're to do with our fear. But then Peter gives us a very important warning. He basically says, don't get caught in the lion's mouth. Cast yourself upon the care of God and allow his net of covering to be over you, but don't get caught in the lion's mouth. Look what he says in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Now, here's, here's, here's a strange paradox that we face oftentimes. How many of you think life got more complicated after you came to faith in Christ? Anybody? Quite a few, right? Does that make sense? I mean, on our, on our intellectual level, when we start thinking about it, well, wait, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Things should get much, much better. Except for there's one big problem that's addressed right here in these verses. Is you now have an enemy you didn't have before. Because the truth is, before we're, we come to Christ, Satan doesn't care about you. You're already his. You're already messing up your life perfectly fine on your own. He doesn't have to even mess with you at all. But once you come to Christ, you and I, because of our faith in Christ and because the Holy Spirit now lives in us, we become a threat to him. And so therefore, he is an enemy, an adversary who is seeking your destruction. He's seeking to distract you, dissuade you, and to, and to devour you to eat you for lunch. That's what the Scripture says. So it makes sense then that, yes, some circumstances in our life get more difficult. Now, there's another truth that goes with that is that you never face any of them on your own and that God will use those trials, those difficulties, even those attacks of the enemy to point to his glory and accomplish your good. That's what we see in the Scripture when we read about Job It seems like a strange story, but it's so much a picture of the reality in which we live because Satan comes to God and said, have you considered, um, what about Job? You're doing everything for Job. His life is great. If you take away the goodness, he's not going to worship you. And God gave permission to Satan to say, test him, try him. You see, God knew Job better than Job new job. And on the surface, that may seem unfair, but God knows what faith in him accomplishes. He knows that you and I can be used to show the greatness of who he is. And the way that that happens most often is through trials and difficulties. We need to understand that when we come to Christ, we become Satan's enemy. 
He hates humanity. And his purpose is to draw people away from life in Christ. That's what he attempted or did with Adam and Eve, and he will attempt to do it with you and I as well. The picture here is that of a roaring lion seeking to distract you, destroy you, discourage you, and to do whatever he can to devour your faith. He cannot harm you eternally because you're safe in God's hands, but he will do all that he can to devour your faith, to try to discourage you and discourage me. Satan, as a roaring lion, prowls about seeking for one to desire. And here's some of the things that he does, some of the ways that he tries to distract people um, today, especially um, in our modern world. He'll use lust. He'll use pornography. He'll prey upon the desires of our heart, the lust of our eyes, and he'll try to get you distracted from the goodness that God wants to provide when we seek to live in obedience to him and honor his commands. Satan will try to devour you through things, through material possessions. He'll prey upon the covetousness nature of our own sin, our own selfishness. We'll get it, try to get us to covet what other people have. He'll use pride, preying on our desire to be significant. He tries to lead us away from true significance in Christ Jesus. He'll use our fear, trying to um, prey on our desire to control rather than to trust. And he'll use hypocrisy in us, preying on our um, insecurities that make us want to appear something more than what we truly are. In reality, what he does is try to make us settle for far less than who we truly are in Christ. But that's what he attempts to do. We need to understand we have an enemy, but God has given us the resources to stand against him. What we need to do is to put God between us and our circumstances, between us and our enemy, because that is where we will be safe and secure. So let's, let's look at the enemy for just a moment. And I'm going to use this, this imagery that Peter uses here about a roaring lion to to try to give a picture of what he is like. And that begins with the fangs of pride. You know, a lion has those four amazing fangs that are designed to grip into to the flesh of its prey, to bite down and hold on to it. And that's what Satan attempts to do with you and I with the attack of pride. And, and the reason that he does it is because it is his own weakness. In Ezekiel chapter 28, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is revealing a picture of, of Satan. He says this in Ezekiel 28:2, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, which was a, a title for Lucifer or Satan, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seats of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man not a God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You're puffed up. And what Satan does is he tries to use his own weakness against us. That's what he attempted, uh, he tempted Adam and Eve with. He said, if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like 
God. You'll be able to take God's place because that's what Satan wants to do. And so Satan will use our pride against us as well to try to put us in God's rightful place, to get us to take control, to get us to seek glory on our own. And pride, we need to recognize that it will puncture our own soul. Just like the fangs of a lion puncture its prey and hold on, pride will harm us. That's why the contrast here is that we're to humble ourselves under the hand of God. The rescue from the lion's mouth is to humble ourselves. Psalm 31, 23 says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Pride will puncture our soul and the very nature of who we are. Secondly, pride will rip apart our relationships. Pride will destroy your family, your friendships, um, it will de- destroy any relationship that you have if it is left unchecked. It will separate you from those that you love. It will place division between husbands and wives, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, brother and brother, sister and sister, just as it did with Adam and Eve, who were one flesh, just as it played out in Cain and Abel, And divided them, pride broke their relationships. It always destroys. Pride always destroys. It never builds up. That's why we are to humble ourselves. Only full repentance, turning away from self-centered pride and humility will open the jaws of pride so that they lose their bite. James 4, 6 puts it this way, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's the fangs of pride. But the second thing that um, Satan as a roaring lion uses against you is the teeth of accusation. In the scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly making accusations against you and I. And there's a degree of truth to his accusations because part of his accusation is you and I don't deserve the goodness of God. And that's absolutely true. In and of ourselves, we don't. But in Christ Jesus, we've already been given it. And because he deserves it, he deserves to have us be transformed. Therefore, Satan seeks to bring accusation against you that has already been answered in Christ Jesus. We are covered under his righteousness, his identity, and not our own. In fact, the the very word, the devil, means the accuser or the slanderer. So Satan seeks to crush our sense of worth and strength in Christ. But we need to remember who we are in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and behold, the new has come. So don't allow the enemy to steal your identity in Christ. Your worth is secured and proven by the sacrifice of Jesus. Also, Satan seeks to grind down our ability to have joy and victory in our life. He wants to wear you and I out. And so he'll constantly try to get us looking at ourselves and looking at others instead of looking 
at Christ. If he can take your eyes off of God and put them on yourself or on someone else, it will weigh heavier and heavier on your life. And eventually, it will wear you down, grind you down to where there's no more joy in your life. But the opposite is true. The more we abide in Christ, in his presence, in his goodness, in his word, the more joy and victory we experience. The more reality is God is with me and is for me. These are, these are why God gives us so many great promises in his word. Is he wants to give us the um, armament to be able to resist the devil, to stand firm and to build up our faith in Christ so that we defeat the schemes of the devil. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the third point here is how do we escape the lion's roar? Pride is resisted by reminding ourselves it's not about me. Life is not about me. And that takes the burden off incredibly because it is about Christ and I am safe in Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. You will never know the fullness of Jesus until you know the emptiness of everything else but him. That's where life is found. Self-forgetfulness is the key to becoming truly human, truly who we are in Christ. It is when we forget about ourselves that we're able to become who God created and saved us to be. Pride is answered by recognizing it's not about me. Accusation is resisted by continually reminding ourselves it is all about Christ. He's already borne all of my sin. There are plenty of things that Satan has to accuse me of because my sin is great. But my sin has been nailed to a cross in Christ Jesus. It has already been answered for and accounted for. And he has set me free. Peter goes on and ends then in this passage with the protection of God's plan for eternal glory. He says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. If you're one that writes in your your Bible and underlines things, you need to underline that phrase. Will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's his personal promise to you. He is not going to let go of you. He himself is going to restore you. He's going to confirm you, saying, yes, this one is mine. He belongs to me. I love him. I love her. They're my son, my daughter. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Here's how it all comes together. When we truly see what God is doing, when we truly understand 
the greatness of his grace, his love, his strength, and his glory. We recognize that these present sufferings are ultimately connected to eternal glory. God calls us to himself, and he himself will preserve and promote you. His strength will support you. His love will confirm you. His grace will empower you, and his glory will establish you. You are safe in God's hands. You can resist the enemy, not in your own strength, but in God's. Allow him to wrap all that he is around you because he himself will do as he has promised. The way I want to end um, the message is to, is to pray a prayer actually from, from St. Patrick. It's one that... Um, is attributed to him back in the, in the 400s that I think is, is a good reminder for all of us. So as we, as we prepare to, to worship again, I just want to close with this as our prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? I arise today through God's strength to guide me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to go before me, God's eyes to look out for me, God's ear to hear me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from the snares of the devil, from temptation of vices, from everyone who will wish me ill, both far and near, alone and in multitude. Christ is with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eyes that see me, and Christ in the ears that hear me. I arise today through the mighty strength, through the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of all creation. Christ be all around me. Lord God, would you wrap your net of care around each person here today? Lord, I pray that you would enable them to cast their fears upon you, knowing that you care for them fully and securely. And Lord, by your strength, by your name, by what you have done, Lord Jesus, enable us both individually and as a people to be wary, to be watchful, and to resist the enemy. Lord, not to listen to the temptation of pride, not to hear the accusations of the enemy, but instead to remember that in you we are safe and secure. Christ truly is all around us. Oh, Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. And now, Lord, would you enable us to worship 
and praise you, for you are deserving of all honor, all glory, because you alone are God. In the great and mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.